0: Hello and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan and my guest today is Josh Ruxin. He is the author of A Thousand Hills to Heaven, which talks about his life in Rwanda with his family, uh, both as a humanitarian aid worker and as a restaurateur. It's a fascinating story and I'm eager to get into it with you. Thanks for coming, Josh.
1: Great. Great to be on the show.
0: So let's talk a little bit first about what initially drew you, even before going to Rwanda, into the world of international relief and humanitarian aid.
1: Well, when I was a teenager, the Ethiopian famine hit. That was back in 1984, 1985. And I was a nerdy teenager growing up in Ridgefield, Connecticut, very privileged, had a very lucky and easy and charmed existence. But when I started seeing the images of the Ethiopian famine coming across the screen and saw that a lot of other students at my high school were getting interested in doing something about it, I thought that I would join in. And that actually led me on a journey, literally a journey, to Ethiopia in 1987 when I was 17 years old to see some of the areas that had been most affected by the famine. And having never been outside of the country having never really been anywhere. I was moved to want to spend the rest of my life trying to make some sort of contribution. And the following 25 years or so have been about figuring out how to have the greatest impact on poverty while maintaining people's dignity.
0: The opportunity to go to Rwanda came for you At a time where your personal life was already going through a major transformation in in the form of your relationship with your wife.
1: When my wife and I met, I knew that she had spent a little time in Africa and also had a heart for the work there. But we didn't necessarily have any plans to locate there after we were married about eight years ago. But then opportunity shined on us, and a couple of donors presented us with opportunities that we just could not turn down to actually go to Rwanda, live there, and run poverty reduction programs. Now, for Alyssa, there actually wasn't a job in it, but she was quite eager to get out of New York winters and subway rides and uh, check out Rwanda, which she had never had a chance to visit in her prior travels.
0: And as I understand it, as you tell it in, in the memoir, basically you were already working to set up these programs, which were the Millennium Villages throughout Africa. And Rwanda had been considered as a, as a site for the program and then dropped from consideration in favor of other spots that were deemed more favorable. And then this donor basically says to you, it's like, Well, you know, Rwanda ought to have a program, and I will fund the program, but you have to be the person who's there and doing it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what transpired. I I had actually first been introduced to Rwanda in the late 1990s in the private sector when my company was hired at that time to work on Rwanda's coffee industry and tourism industry, which, as you can imagine, were devastated by the 94 genocide. And... I was struck by the ambition at that time of the Rwandan government. They were saying things then such as, we want to be the Singapore of Africa. And a lot of people scoffed at it. But I heard it and thought, wow, here's a country that is really committed to high objectives. So when I got back to my work in public health, which was in 2002, one of the first countries that I called on was Rwanda. During the following years, I had the opportunity to really work with the government of Rwanda and see just how progressive they were. Simultaneously, I became deeply engaged with the Millennium Villages Project, and I was working on that in a couple other countries. And then this opportunity to actually set up the Millennium Village in Rwanda came to fruition.
0: You mentioned that this was about eight years, a decade, past the 94 genocides. And that's a very key theme throughout the book, I think, in that These genocides are in the past, and the country is working to move on. But at the same time, it's ever-present in people's memories.
1: It's impossible to take the genocide history, of course, out of Rwanda. But that said, Rwandans have made more progress at overcoming what one would anticipate to be the remnants of those horrors, and have actually created a new country. And so when you walk the streets of Kigali or the streets of any town in the country, you find a nation that has actually advanced far beyond where it was even before the genocide. So it's a very exciting place where you can literally feel the pulse of development happening. But, of course, the backdrop of all this is that everyone there virtually everyone there, has got a genocide story. And although half of the population today was born after the genocide, half wasn't. And that half either literally suffered or was involved in one way or another in the genocide itself, or uh, was living in refugee camps or other places outside of the country, and had fled beginning back in 1959, and then had always dreamed of this great return. So they are the returnees.
0: And these stories do come up, but only under certain circumstances. You know, the, the, the circumstances have to be just right for somebody to be even be willing to share their genocide story
1: with you. I would say that it is certainly not part of daily conversation that you will hear about the genocide. What you will hear about are offhand remarks, such as one of our drivers, Abed, who we call in the book Op-Ed, because he has a lot to say about everything, noting that while at the time he only had one child of his own, there were a couple other kids living at his place because they were survivors of the genocide who'd been orphaned. Or Joël our cook, who was very much in the same situation and had taken on three survivors of the genocide. So everyone has literally the physical artifacts of the genocide in the form of orphans living in their house or somehow impacting their day-to-day existence.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the project, the, the Millennium Village that you were doing, and the main goals that you had and how you went about implementing them. Sorry, I know that's a big talk. (laughs) Yeah, it is
1: It is is big. So the Millennium Village in Rwanda was actually chosen by the government of Rwanda in a place called Mayanje, which is today only about 45 minutes south of Kigali, but when we started, it often took two, three, four hours to get there because there was no road. And this was in a region that was the epicenter of the genocide. So it was completely devastated. It had one of the highest death tolls during the genocide. And then afterwards, people came back to resettle there. There was just a problem or two, namely that there was no topsoil. There was nothing really productive happening in agriculture. And people were literally starving to death. Uh, They also didn't have access to water or to electricity or to decent education or health. And so when we were told that we would be working in Mayanje, sort of a shudder went through the entire team because we realized this is certainly one of the toughest places in the entire country to pull this off. But we started at the very beginning, and and this is one of the insights from the book, which is, you don't go into a community where kids are dying of malaria or people are dying of hunger and tell them what to do because they're starving to death. They're suffering in all sorts of ways all the time. You start off by making sure that they've got enough food to eat and then you begin rebuilding community. And that's exactly what the team so expertly did And I can tell you today, now a full seven or eight years out, that Mayanje is one of the wealthier communities outside of Kigali. Real estate prices have gone up fivefold. People have enough to eat. They actually set aside a good amount of food every year just in case of emergency, and they're net food exporters.
0: You mentioned the government's role in selecting this site for the village. That points to something that you bring up in the book as well, which is that the Rwandan government in the context of other African governments is miles ahead in the approach that it's taking to dealing with its poverty and its, its difficult circumstances.
1: And I think you hit the nail on the head by saying that they're dealing with the country's poverty. Most African governments don't really care about rural poverty and most sadly are not focused on programs to actually alleviate it. But the Rwandan government has now for 20 years been micro-focused on that very issue and building community, building systems, and building out infrastructure to serve the rural poor and not necessarily treating... One region, one town, one ethnic group, any differently from another, but rather to really bring up the entire playing field for all Rwandese so that everyone has the chance to actually move forward.
0: The idea that they can completely eliminate poverty in our lifetime, on, on the one hand, it's a wildly audacious goal, but as you're right, it's like if anybody's going to accomplish it, this government and this nation seems on like the best track possible. Yeah,
1: I mean, of course, poverty elimination is not even something we figured out here in the U.S., but we certainly have lower poverty rates than a number of countries on the planet. And Rwanda, with each passing day, each passing month, has a lower poverty rate. The, The facts speak for themselves. People are entering business, starting up new businesses, producing more food, producing more goods, and they are finding their way out of poverty. And You know, I think one of the the biggest lessons of the book and one of the reasons that I wrote it was that I have always worked on the humanitarian side and worked on the delivery of public health services in particular to alleviate poverty because I've long believed that if you don't have good health, there's no way that you can go very far towards creating wealth. What I've seen through the lens of my wife's restaurant, Heaven, is that Actually, the best poverty reduction occurs when you create jobs and you innovate and create something
0: new. Heaven is, as you say, it's your wife's restaurant, and it's one of those new businesses that is opening up in the nation. And she came up with the idea after, as you said, when you went to Rwanda, you had a job and she didn't. And she was volunteering for a while. And then she hit upon the idea of opening I think it was originally a coffee shop rather than a restaurant. That,
1: that That's the thing. I was a, a bit hoodwinked in all this. Uh, Alyssa was working with an organization now called Generation Rwanda or Kepler. And she was working with orphans of the genocide and other orphans and other very vulnerable kids. And seeing that even those that went to university didn't have job options. And those who didn't go to university had no job options. So her... Very simple proposal to me was, hey, why don't we open up a little cafe, some plastic seats, some little tables? And I said, sure, that sounds like a terrific idea. Soon after, investors came in and started essentially a Starbucks-style chain in the country called Bourbon Cafe. So we realized that we weren't going to be able to do that. And Alyssa changed her mind and said, well, why don't I just open the first gourmet restaurant? in the nation. And today it is the top restaurant in the country. And a lot of people think
0: it's one of the top restaurants in all of East Africa. And it's one that, as you say, employs a lot of Rwandans as part of its operations. Yeah, we have a few dozen people who
1: are full-time employees. And it's important to note that each one of them is supporting at least another six to 10 people back at home, either for their education, their health care, their housing, their businesses. So there's a lot of downstream effects for hundreds of people quite directly impacted. And then there's the food side, and there's the purveyors, and there's the technicians, and there's the dancers, and there's the cultural events that happen at Heaven because it really is the venue for art, culture, photography uh, in, in the entire country. And as a result of that, I mean, by my... Very rough estimates, there are several hundred people who are indirectly employed by the restaurant.
0: You talk about this in the book that even before the restaurant, from the moment you got there, but certainly in the context of running the restaurant, the fact that you are doing this on a series of 90 day visas, at least to start, I mean, is that still the case that you are going we've, from. <laughs> we've moved on. We've moved on. We
1: used <laughs> to, uh, when we first moved to Rwanda eight years ago, immigration was slightly disorganized. It was very difficult to get a permanent work visa or any sort of long-term status. And so we implemented something called the 90-day rule, which was that if we didn't leave the country every 90 days, then we would be in violation of immigration. And so every 90 days, we would make sure that we would go to beautiful places in the area. Now, uh, we don't get out every 90 days. We've got too much going on. But we certainly could leave every 90 days uh, if if it were within our power. Um, but we do have work visas. And Rwanda has really gone a long way towards systematizing all systems. I mean, it's, it's a really impressive place right now. In fact, they just rolled out wireless uh, on the public buses, just to give you a sense of how ambitious the place is.
0: Now, you mentioned before that... One of the things that drew you to write this book was getting the the story across about economic developments through entrepreneurship. But were there other elements or or other things going on that led you at some point after having done all this to say to yourself, you know what, this isn't just a story I should be telling to people who are passing through or, or wanting to learn, you know, that this is a story I should be setting down and getting out into the world.
1: Yeah, I think, unfortunately, the conventional wisdom that's out there about development continues to be of one pedagogy or another, none of which provides real insight into what to do to reduce poverty on the planet. On one hand, there are those who believe that if we just do more aid, more big aid, it's going to solve everything in spite of evidence that most big aid actually hasn't had much impact over the years. Then on the other side, you've got people who say all aid is bad and we just shouldn't be doing it. And I came to realize working with the government of Rwanda and, of course, working on the restaurant, that there is this middle ground that actually there's a lot we could be doing with aid that could be wildly effective and sustainable. And there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from the private sector That should be applied through aid programs in order to make both public programs, but also the private
0: sector thrive. In terms of outlining your history with the Millennium Village, you lay out some key principles that you think make for successful initiatives. I think underlying all of those is the idea that, yes, obviously you want to bring about transformative change in these areas, but in a way that ultimately does not make you or the relief organization indispensable to that change.
1: It's really one of the the key lessons is that if you have to be married to it, if something is completely dependent on your efforts forever, then there, of course, is a humanitarian point to doing it because you might improve people's lives while you're actually doing it. But then what? And whether we're talking about Heaven or my main not-for-profit organization now called Health Builders, we like to do things that are going to be self-sustained in perpetuity. I'll I'll give you a quick example of it. Through Health Builders, we actually co-finance brand new health facilities in Rwanda. And the day that the facilities open up, there's no plaque that says Health Builders built this or such and such donor built that. Uh, but rather it is owned by the community and owned by the government and staffed by the government from opening day. So there is no perception that someone else is responsible for it. That is really, I I think, a critical insight for doing development well. When you drive across Africa, the, the continent is littered with signs of donor projects these stairs were built by this donor, or this roadway was built by that donor. And I think that they're all getting it wrong.
0: At the same time, while you are prepared to be able to hand off all of these works that you've been part of, you've also, it, it feels like, made the decision, you and your wife and your family, that this is home.
1: Rwanda certainly is home for us. <laughs> I mean, we moved there Eight years ago for two years, and we still had a place in New York, which we eventually sold. And I think we've come to terms with the fact that we find great meaning in our lives in Rwanda. We love our friends in Rwanda. We love the climate there. And we really embrace all these opportunities that Rwanda throws our way. So we can't really imagine living anywhere else right now.
0: So while living there full-time, you do come back periodically. I mean, I know you're teaching at Columbia this semester. Um, actually not. not so I, I, don't, I don't get to
1: teach uh, as much as I'd like. That was another reason for writing the book was to really get these ideas down to share with students. I spend time periodically lecturing okay. uh, and, and, and speaking stateside. But with three kids back in Rwanda, you can imagine that, and a restaurant, and all these other programs, I don't really have the chance to come back very often, un- unfortunately. But I, I do love the time that, that we actually get back in the States because I think we're able to appreciate it in different ways than we would otherwise. We're able to see and notice things that we otherwise wouldn't. I mean, this is always, of course, a dilemma. Our kids have wonderful, very privileged lives in Rwanda. They go to a fabulous Montessori school. They have lots of friends and opportunities that, of course, most Rwandans don't have access to. They walk out the doors of our house and they'll see kids walking up and down the street with sticks on their head, bringing home uh, firewood. So they are growing up, Seeing the greatest of the world's contrasts. I mean, I, the way I like to put it is really, if, if you were coming from outer space and landed on the planet, what, what would you most notice outside of environmental degradation? It would be the incredible difference and distance between the haves and the have nots. And our kids are exposed to it all the time. So when they get stateside and they see so much wealth that is shared by so many people, it gives us deep appreciation for what the United States has created.
0: And do you have more stories that you want to tell down the line about your experiences in Rwanda?
1: There are so many stories that I originally put down and cut out going through the process of writing the book that I I certainly do have more, but... I also have this wish for the book that it inspires people who otherwise never would have thought of going to Rwanda to see it for themselves and have their own experiences and and create their own stories there. But I'm definitely not tapped out. I'm not tapped out of Rwanda um, and certainly not tapped out of East Africa or or the continent. And, And I'm lucky enough to have different opportunities now that no doubt someday I'll be committing to print.
0: And I also think that A Thousand Hills to Heaven will inspire many people to at least want to go to Rwanda and to Kigali and to hopefully visit the restaurant. I've been talking with the author, Josh Ruxon. It's published by Little Brown. And you have been listening to Life Stories. If you are subscribed to it on iTunes, thank you. If you have not subscribed on iTunes, you can subscribe on iTunes. And you can also rate and review the podcast there to help other people find it more easily. I'm Ron Hogan, and I thank you for listening.